There's a lot of talk today about how America's polarized. You know, we're caught up in this cycle of reactivity, and this creates an atmosphere of anxiety that seeps into our churches today. And so we're looking for wisdom. And a good source of wisdom is in the past, specifically in the Reformed Anglican theologian Richard Hooker. Dr. Brad Littlejohn joins us to talk about how Richard Hooker navigated tensions in his own time within the Reformation between Presbyterians and Episcopalians and how this informs our modern-day gridlock. We also discuss Hooker's desire to combine the best of both Protestant theology and Catholic liturgical practices as a means of reformation. And finally, we talk a little bit about the pitfalls of radicalism and hubris that can happen in reform movements during times of great social change and upheaval. Enjoy this episode. You're listening to That'll Preach. We've got a new episode today for our Reformation series where we have Dr. Brad Littlejohn on with us. Dr. Brad Littlejohn is the founder and president of the Davenant Institute. He also works as a fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and he's taught for many institutions. He's published widely, and uh, he's an expert on the subject, the person that we're going to talk about today, the uh, Anglican theologian. Richard Hooker. Brad, thank you for being on the show with us. Thank you, Brian. My pleasure. So I first encountered your work through some of the stuff that you published on Richard Hooker, or rather just through the Davin Institute, but I remember picking up a copy of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity and being like, man, I've never heard of this guy, but this guy is writing stuff that I feel like he'd be writing today. Just his insights, his thoughts, and uh, found him to be a very interesting character. I, I've learned a lot about the Reformation just thinking, you know, I went to Reform Theological Seminary, but we didn't really talk about Richard Hooker. And uh, as I was stunned to learn how instrumental he was in Reformed thought and the way that a lot of the things that he was talking about still resonate today. So I'm curious on your end, what got you interested in studying Richard Hooker and becoming a scholar uh, about him? Yeah, well, I first encountered him, um, I guess I was doing work on John Williams and Nevin and the Mercersburg Theology, and John, uh, that would have been when I was in college, and John Nevin cites Hooker um, very appreciatively in his discussion of the Reformed Theology of the Eucharist. Um, he thinks Hooker's one of the best exponents of it. So I came across it then, I did a Oxford study program when I was in college, the summer study did a course on Reformation history, visited, you know, saw the places where Hooker would have taught and written, and uh, was, uh, so I was really, really interested. I mean, our, our my teacher there kind of was, spoke very reverentially, you know, he's like, oh, this is where, you know, this was Hooker's study. So like, oh, this guy's obviously important to these English Church of England guys. Uh, so I, I studied him a little bit more, did a research paper comparing Calvin and Hooker on predestination and on the Eucharist, I argued that Hooker was more, was largely in line with Calvin on both doctrines, actually, especially the Eucharist. Um, but then I actually, so that was, I don't know, 2007? Yeah. Uh, I kind of, I largely forgot about Hooker as I got into other interests, got focused, got more interested in issues, issues of law and political theology. And... Um, rediscovered Hooker while doing my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. 
on the you know freedom and authority in the English Reformation. So my advisor encouraged me to take some time reading through all of Hooker Hooker's uh, laws of ecclesiastical polity. He thought I would find it relevant, and indeed it was. You know, like you said, I was just like, wow. I mean, he is speaking directly to so many of the questions that I've been wrestling with. So many of the questions that I feel like are live issues in Reformed churches today. And it was, um, you know, there and then I discovered what I was writing my dissertation on. And also at the same time, he kind of answered a lot of theological questions I had been wrestling with personally. So I knew that it was the beginning of a lifelong, a lifelong relationship, as it were. And uh, I, you know, I teach on Hooker. Well, gee, probably, you know, in some capacity, probably teaching on Hooker at least three times a year, you know, ever since. So, um, yeah, especially especially the first first four books of the Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, which is what we've modernized so far. Although we have a volume coming out soon that is a big ch- a key chunk of Book Five on Christology and the Sacraments, which I think will be of interest to a lot of Reformed readers. So, well, why don't you talk to us a little bit about who Richard Hooker is? If you wanted to give a an introduction to someone who's never heard about him before, what would you say? So Richard Hooker is one of these guys who's writing before uh, Reformed and Anglican have really become clearly separated categories in the way that they generally are today. You'll often hear that there's three main branches that came out of the Reformation, the Lutheran, the Reformed, and the Anglican. Uh, and of course, you know, it wasn't really that simple. I mean, the, the distinction between Lutheran and Reformed actually took a few decades to crystallize. And then the distinction between Reformed and Anglican took another few decades to crystallized and in, in some sense never has. There are many Anglicans who would describe themselves as reformed even now. Um, and at that time, uh, you know, if, if you'd asked Hooker, how did he think of his theological identity, he probably would have said, you know, English English reformed. Uh, so the there is a difference, of course, disagreement over church polity between Presbyterian Presbyterian reformed and Episcopalian reformed at that time in the Church of England. There are those who think that the Reformed Church of England should be governed by bishops and those who think it should be governed by by elders. Uh, but in, initially, that was not considered a particularly important dividing line. I mean, uh, and for instance, the Synod of Dort, which is considered, you know, that's where you get the five points of Calvinism coming out of that. It's an international Reformed gathering in 1618 through 19. You have um, English bishops there as representatives as well. So there, there's a sense that the Episcop- you know, the Episcopalian Reformed, as it were, and the Presbyterian Reformed are all kind of fighting the same fight. So Hooker is writing in the, he writes his, in the 1580s and 1590s. Um, and, but he, he's in the Church of England. He's defending the Church of England against, in fact, those who are arguing that it needs to be Presbyterian. If it's going to be, they're saying, if it's going to be truly Reformed, it needs to be Presbyterian. And Hooker's saying, no, I don't see why that is, um, because uh, church polity is a secondary matter. It's not really, it's not a matter of, of fundamental doctrine. Scripture says very little about the subject. Um, a lot of what Scripture does say about the subject uh, seems kind of contextually circum, you know, contextually dependent. And so, a, a lot of what Hooker's trying to do in that work is say. <sighs> How do, how do we think about, in the aftermath of the Reformation, how do we think about sola scriptura? Um, that it means that all of our doctrine must be normed by scripture alone. 
but it doesn't mean that scripture is the only source of information that we have. Um, and it doesn't, and it also doesn't mean that everything that scripture says is unchanging. We know that may sound controversial at first, but then you say, well, obviously the ceremonial law of the old Testament, it's there in the Bible. It doesn't bind us today. There are, there are commands in the Bible that were, that were written for specific context. And there are things in the Bible that were written for, for all time. And we need to be able to distinguish which they are. So that's kind of Hooker's important contribution. Um, but I, I may be getting ahead of myself. Just sorry, going back just briefly, you know, just basic biographical facts. He's born in the 1550s. Um, he dies in 1600, so he doesn't live, you know, he lives to be 46. His life overlaps almost entirely with the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, so he's very much a product of the Elizabethan age. He's writing at the same time as Shakespeare. Um, his writing is famous for the kind of the 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 elevation of the prose right i mean he's it's he kind of is to prose to prose theological writing as as shakespeare is to poetic writing uh, so yeah there's there's some basics now you mentioned uh the doctrine of sola scriptura and that was what was interesting to me about hooker because as i've been you know looking through Protestant Catholic dialogues and all these types of things. Sola Scriptura is like the center of the target. That is that is one of the contested doctrines. And I've noticed even among Protestants, there's sort of a spectrum on Sola Scriptura. Some people would take a very radical kind of uh, solo Scriptura. You know, just it's that's the only place where we get doctrinal information. But Hooker, and this is what people were telling me about Hooker, was he had something that was a little broader. People called it primus scriptura or something like that or he had a model like a three-legged stool something like that and those were things that i was very intrigued with because this is a guy from the reformed tradition or from the reformation broadly speaking and he seems to have a more nuanced view of it could you unpack that a little bit more you were talking about that especially if you're thinking about you have these presbyterians who want to reform the church of england in their mind all the way and then you've got hooker saying i don't I don't know that there's a reason for that, reforming the liturgical practices and all these types of things. And yet they both would hold to a Reformation principle of Scripture. Um, how do we make sense of that divergence on something that they both, on paper, agree on? Yeah. Well, you know, so Hooker is, is in many ways, he's unpacking what's in the 39 Articles, um, Article 6, so the 39 Articles of Religion, the, the kind of confession of faith of the English Protestant church. And what that's, and what that says, let me just read it is Holy scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Uh, so it's, there's, if, if we look closely at that, there's a number of things going on that might, be different than what we often think of as the doctrine of sola scriptura. Uh, but I should note article six is not, this is not an Anglican distinctive. That statement in article six would have been seen as, you know, a base, a, a pretty classic Protestant understanding of what sola scriptura meant in those first decades of the reformation. But it says scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So you know, first of all, it doesn't contain all things and, you know, everybody grants it doesn't contain all things. Um, you know, it's not a it's not a it's not a manual for plumbers or electricians, but there is a tendency often, I think, of Christians today to talk about, you know, a, like a biblical worldview, this or that, like scripture contains 
is sort of the source of knowledge for all these all these different fields of knowledge. And that's not what the reformers taught. They said it contains all things necessary to salvation, um, in a particular with a, in a particular sphere of knowledge. Uh, and what that means is, if if scripture doesn't um, if scripture doesn't talk about something, then that may be true. It may be good. It may be important. Re- you know, relevant to various things. But it's not. You can't say it's necessary to salvation. So you can't say, for instance, you know, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, as the Roman Catholic Church has said. Like, you know, here's a doctrine. The church holds it. Uh, we thought it for a long time, and all Catholics must believe it as an article of faith. Well, no, it's not in Scripture. It could be true, right? So, so Scripture doesn't mean that the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary is necessarily false. It just means that, at best, it's a kind of pious speculation, right? Um, and so... Um, yeah, and so th- what that means then is similarly, what Hooker's going to say is, well, that means on matters of church polity, um, if we're talking about should the church be governed by bishops uh, or by elders? And uh, w- what he's going to say is, you know, people can read the New Testament and they can point to these passages, and but it's utterly, it's, 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 utterly, it's very inconclusive. And it doesn't seem like the New Testament writers were that concerned to give us that much guidance on it. And so we need to make a decision on it. It's an important issue. We have church has to be governed somehow, but um, it can't, you can't really prove one or the other from scripture. And so therefore you can't say this is a necessary as an article of faith. So that's one key part of what Hooker's doing. The other thing um, which you get at with your, so I would say that's kind of, you know, the scope of scriptural authority, right? There's a question of, how much does scripture address? And then in things that scripture doesn't address, how do we, how do we approach those? Um, but there's also kind of, um, we could say, you know, how scripture functions as an authority, um, the way scripture is interpreted. And this gets to your point about the three-legged stool. Now the three-legged stool is a, it's a terrible metaphor. It's, 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 you often encounter Anglicans reference it. They often attribute it to Hooker. Hooker never uses that language and he never really, uses that concept. Um, but, you know, it's saying scripture, reason, and tradition all function in some way as authorities in the life of the church. The problem with language of a three-legged stool is, you know, three-legged stool, all the legs have to be the same length for the stool to work, right? Um, they're all bearing weight in the same way. Scripture, reason, tradition are not bearing weight in the same way. They're not the same kinds of authority. So scripture is the the sort of the sole final authority, right? Um, if if uh, you know, ultimately something cannot can never go against scripture, but it can go against tradition, and it can go against reason in a sense, right? I mean, or, or it can go at least beyond reason. There are many things that we hold as scriptural truths that reason would never be able to reach unto. Reach reason can never grasp them, uh, and so reason is a kind of reason is an authority that can be overridden in a sense. Tradition is an authority that can definitely be overridden. Scripture can't be. But you make use of reason and tradition in interpreting and applying scripture. Um, and I should note even there, the the three legs is kind of unhelpful because really when Hooker talks about reason and tradition, those are often really two sides of the same coin because he's not thinking of reason primarily in our modern post-enlightenment sense of like individual reason. Reason is something that is exercised by a community, by the the wise and the learned in a community over time. And so tradition really is just another name for 
the reason exercised by a community over time, right? Um, and so Hooker has a strong doctrine of the role of tradition in the life of the church, but it's not the way sometimes Roman, the Roman Catholics, or I think, or Eastern Orthodox, or some Anglicans talk about tradition, where it's sort of tradition has this sort of special aura of sanctity. It's a kind of extra means of revelation by the Holy Spirit or something like that. Um, we don't, you know, we don't know why, we don't know why tradition says it, but tradition says it, therefore it must be true. It's not that. It's more like in any area of knowledge, you know, if you're studying, studying math, or you're studying science, you know, you're studying economics, whatever, you don't start from scratch. You start with what has been established in that field by the best scholars over generations, right? That's the tradition um, that is the, kind of the basis of your knowledge. Same thing in theology. Um, you'd be stupid to start from scratch. And so you kind of give weight to what those who've come before have said. Well, what would Hooker think about something like apostolic succession? I mean, that's a big thing in Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox circles, and Anglicans, depending on, I guess, where you're right. at. Apostolic succession is a huge idea. What, what was what was Hooker's thoughts on that? Yeah, he doesn't seem terribly concerned with the doctrine. Um, I mean, in a certain in a certain way, he would say that. Uh, so, as I said, he. He, he doesn't come down, he doesn't think the doctrine of episcopacy is necessary. He thinks that it is true as that this is, that's certainly, that's an example of tradition. He would say, look, episcopacy, I think I can find the the foundation stones of it in the New Testament, but certainly from very shortly after the New Testament church, episcopacy is a kind of universal practice. So this is a tradition that's been long established. So therefore there's a very high burden of proof if anyone wants to overcome it, right? So, um, so bishops, he thinks, are should be kind of the default, maybe in the church. And he would say bishops then, in some sense, are the successors of the apostles, right? There's a that's their task is to carry on the apostolic vocation or, or aspects of the apostolic vocation in the life of the church, and the authority that originally belonged to the apostles is carried on through the bishops and ministers. So he he will say things like that in a, in a general sense, um, but. I think when people, a lot of people talk about apostolic succession, it's a question of ensuring the continued existence of the church. That is to say, the church can only exist where it is, um, as, as, as the authority of the apostles is transmitted on to these bishops. And so then, if there's any point at which that transmission is broken, if you have, you know, the kind of church on a desert island scenario, right? Um, that it doesn't, it can't, or, or uh, the, you know, the continental Protestant churches in the time of the Reformation that sort of didn't have a succession of bishops. If that succession of bishops is broken, then, well, you don't really have a church anymore because the church depends upon that, that, you know, one man after another connection all the way back to the apostles. That's what a strong doctrine of apostolic succession would say. That's what, you know, Rome puts a lot of stress on that. And Rome would say, you know, this is one of the reasons why, Protestant churches can't be considered churches in the full sense, and then there's a whole debate of whether the Anglicans, they had bishops, but do those bishops really count? Um, Hooker's not really interested in that question. Um, for him, we could say the apostolic succession is part of the, the bene essay of the church, the well-being of the church, um, but it's not part of the being of the church. And so, you know, if 
if you hypothetically had say you know you had a bishop who didn't get you know for some reason or other didn't get ordained by a previous bishop um there was a lapse in authority there was a revolution or you know there was a like the english reformation a kind of a break and um a break in the line of transmission that's okay you know i mean the, the holy spirit can sort of deal with that as it were Maybe we could step back and just talk about broadly what was the controversy was dealing with. We talked a little bit about it, that there were Presbyterians who wanted to reform the Church of England. But as he's writing, or rather, I guess the the circumstances of him writing Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, can you build that out and show us what were the stakes of the debate? What was he trying to accomplish in writing these massive you know, volumes and, and trying to, to work through these issues? Yeah, so going back to that statement in Article 6 of the 39 Articles, right? Um, so Scripture contains everything necessary for salvation. So then what about everything else, uh, right? Um, and and all parties kind of agree that there were things that were not contained in Scripture, but that were nonetheless important issues in the life of the Church. Um, you know, there's what, you know, what time do we worship? Um, how, how often do we worship? Uh, what... Um, you know what structure exactly does the order of worship have? Uh, what what vestments, what garments? You know, should the um, the ministers wear in in worship? Uh, what how should you administer communion? Right. So there's you know a zillion questions that every church has to answer that that we may you know we'll have opinions on what a better or worse way to do is. We'll have opinions on what maybe a, a more or less biblical way to do it is. But really, if we're being honest with ourselves, it's they are what the reformers called adiaphora, things indifferent, which is to me say they're just things that are left under underdetermined by scripture. And I think it's really unhelpful the way a lot of American evangelicals um will you know talk about the biblical way to do this, the biblical way to do that, right? And they just use this adjective biblical. And you're like, why are you like this isn't a bit <laughs> there's not a biblical way. The Bible doesn't directly speak to that. Like both, I mean, the Bible speaks to it in very general terms, but both of you, you know, we have two, you have an argument over like the, you know, the biblical way to do, um, people, you know, talk about the biblical way to do education, you know, is it, is it homeschooling or is it, you know, classical schooling or whatever, right? There's obviously not a biblical answer to that. So, um, so, all right, I got to move a little faster here. Sorry, I wrote my whole dissertation on this, so I could I could spend hours on it. But um, so there's a, a recognition that there's this area of adiaphora things that uh, churches have to make up their minds on that Scripture doesn't directly speak to. Okay, problem is in uh, in the post Reformation Church of England, the Elizabethan Church, there's some pretty radical disagreement over how you should handle those things. Should you basically? make things as different as possible from Roman Catholicism in order to sort of signal to people we are not Roman Catholic anymore, not just in the important doctrinal issues, but even on the little issues, right? Our ministers don't dress the same as, you know, the Roman Catholics wear white, we wear black, you know, <laughs> that's really kind of what it was, right? Um, uh, or do you say, look, on these, on these kind of cosmetic issues, let's retain some continuity so that we don't change absolutely everything, right? Because people need continuity. Society needs continuity for stability. And so we're changing a bunch of key doctrinal things. Let's not change the things that don't matter. So that's the debate going uh, in the 1560s. There, 
Elizabeth and many of her bishops want to retain continuity. There are a number of ministers who say, no, this is bad. We should remove anything that looks like Rome at all. And um, as that argument proceeds, you know, Elizabeth basically says, bishops, okay, you need to enforce conformity here. You need to make these ministers uh, follow the rules here. You know, and it was very it was specifically over what vestments to wear um, in the in the service. And so that bred a lot of bitterness toward the bishops, um, where there was a sense that these bishops were being tyrannical. In re reality, the bishops were just kind of in a tight spot. The queen was saying, you've got to do this. And the queen didn't want to come out in public, and she didn't want to be the bad guy, so she made the bishops the bad guy. And so that leads to a backlash against the bishops, and that leads, leads to the rise of the Presbyterian movement. Okay, we can't trust these bishops. Maybe we shouldn't have bishops at all. Um, and then at the same time, you have all these liturgical questions this still going on. How do we decide these matters of what to wear in worship, how, when to kneel in worship, um, et cetera, et cetera. And you have this tendency to say, maybe, maybe these aren't adiaphora after all. Maybe the reason, maybe we shouldn't be arguing, maybe the Bible actually, you know, the, maybe the Bible actually gives us answers on these things. And so there's this desire to get away, to get, to overcome this, you have this intractable argument over how should we, how Roman Catholic should we or shouldn't we be in these things. And it's like, maybe we can just cut through all of that by finding a biblical answer to the question. And so there's an attempt to find, as it were, a Bible verse to answer every question of church order and worship. Um, and Hooker sees that as a very dangerous development because it's going to introduce a new, a new legalism that the Reformation was actually trying to overcome. It's an interesting phrase, a new legalism. I mean, what struck me about ecclesiastical polity and, and some of the remarks he makes is he almost gets into the psychology of radicalism, that there is something intrinsic about, you know, he, I mean, I can't recall it off the top of my head, but, but, he, but he really talks about how it's kind of like, like you were saying, if, if, if it's black, then we're white. If it's, you know, if it's, a circle and we're a square, you know, that whole kind of thing. And he has some really interesting insights about that. But I, I was curious about your thoughts on like just even getting under the surface. What is what is Hooker picking up on under the surface with regard to the maybe psychology is an anachronistic word to apply back then, but just there's something else going on mm -hmm. that Hooker's worried about with radicalism, even beyond yeah. just like whether Presbyterianism is the correct right. polity. What yeah. are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think Hooker is, you could say he's one of the earliest social psychologists, I would say. The um, the preface to the laws is a is kind of which we published initially as radical as under the title Radicalism as a kind of freestanding treatise. Um and it's applicable to lots and lots of things outside of debates over church polity. Um in fact, the mid-20th century political theorist Eric Vogelin thought that it was kind of the best analysis of the logic of modern radical politics that you see in the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, so on. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, it's basically uh, what Hooker's discerning is in times of, in times of change and upheaval, uh, people don't like, people do not like uncertainty. And the world is full of uncertainty. And so um, they look for 
They look for some kind of shortcut to certainty. They look for uh, a word of divine authority that will cut through all this this fog of war and will say, no, this is this is the only way to do it. And the problem is, of course, <laughs> if there isn't, in fact, <laughs> such a word of divine authority um, resolving all that uncertainty, then it will happen that that a lot of the people a lot of people won't be able to see it, right? You'll have a group of people that are, that are like, you know, thus saith the Lord, the Lord has spoken, you know, there, uh, there must, there must be Presbyterianism. And that's what, that's what the Bible says. And then other people say, well, I don't, I don't see that in the Bible. Right. So then what do you do? Well, you've got this group that is convinced that they have a word from the Lord. And then a lot of other people don't see it. So then the, the kind of reforming group will say, well, that's because, that's because we've been illumined, you know, they have to explain why is it that other people don't see it? Well, other people don't see it because they haven't received the illumination, the special illumination of the spirit, as it were. And we have received the special illumination of the spirit. So they, therefore, we can't trust. Then what happens is now a kind of a wall is formed where you can't have a debate anymore, right? We started off having a debate. Does the Bible teach Presbyterianism or not? But then it's, well, of course you would say it doesn't because you're blinded by sin and Satan. And so we can't even have a conversation with you, right? Um, so we should really only talk to our own people. We should only listen to our own people because they're the only ones who are trustworthy. And so then this echo chamber gets created uh, and you and there's the sense that we alone, the kind of the chosen few, have been granted the insight to understand the Lord's will. And then what Hooker says is the problem is once you cross that line and, and you insulate yourself against any outside criticism, then the train can go off the rails really quickly, right? And he talks about how this happened in some of the Anabaptist movements early in the Reformation, which he, he sees this kind of the same thing happening again. Um, so you had a group of Anabaptists that, you know, that became convinced that the millennial kingdom was at hand, that their leader was the anointed, was the anointed you know, prophet of the Lord. Um, it was a kind of, um, uh, if anyone still remembers, a David Koresh in Waco situation back in the in the 90s, right? This, this, this leader started teaching polygamy and uh, they took over the city. And anyway, it was it turned into just this complete um, chaos because he says, once people get it into their heads, that they alone can are kind of attuned to the spirit's voice, then anything that comes into their heads, <laughs> they'll attribute it to the spirit, right? Um, and again, this can happen in politics too, right? So Vogelin sees like the, the Russian Revolution, um, this, the, so the rise of the Soviets unfolding kind of the same way. Like the, the Bolsheviks are these true believers. It's now in secular terms, but it's like we alone have seen the light. We alone understand how history works. And, and because of that special knowledge that we have, everything that we do from here on out is justified. So how does Hooker try to make peace? I mean, what, I, I'm kind of curious, what what happened? Did he end up winning some of the radicals over? Did he, you know, because, and also thinking about it too, like, are these radicals, like, are modern Presbyterians the descendants of these radicals? I mean, it, it, how, how did this end up playing out in England? Yeah. Um, so... Um, yes, uh, the decades after Hooker are a period of relative peace and harmony, relative, um, where you have 
uh, many of the leading Puritans, uh, yeah, make their peace to some extent with the um, with the Church of England, and and some of the and some of the bishops too, you know, say, look, you know, some of the bishops have a more, are more pastorally minded, and they say, look, this person has some honest scruples. And we're going to give this, you know, this person doesn't want to, you know, do the kneeling during communion or whatever. We're going to kind of turn to sort of turn a blind eye to that. Um, and so they, they try to they make more of an effort to distinguish between the real troublemakers and the people who have honest scruples. Uh, now, how much of that, you know, how much of a role did Hooker's work itself play in bringing about that period of, of relative peace? I think it's, it's hard to say. Um it was, uh, I mean, it was definitely, it was recognized as a tremendously important work, kind of, but it was, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't kind of, it didn't have a mass readership, right? It, it was sort of, uh, as it were, sort of a, a cult classic, as it were, among, among leading theologians. Um, so I think it did have, I did get, did have a persuasive influence on some, um, the policies of King James, um, also, I mean, King James was was actually quite clever. And when he came to the throne, he was confronted with, you know, kind of the Puritan protest that said, "Hey, now that you're the king, you know, please deal with deal with all these things that Elizabeth didn't deal with." And he, you know, the bishops present their side of the story, the Puritans present their side of the story, and he's like, "Look, I've got a better idea. Why don't you guys work on something together?" Um, and so that's the King James Bible Project comes out of that, where he says. Let's quit bickering and let's just do a translation of the Bible. Um, that and so he actually gets Puritan leaders, and uh, and some of the bishops, in this common project, which I think was a really clever move that that did actually make an important difference. But um, ultimately, it is still it's an unstable situation. And um, in after James dies, his son Charles is not as adept. A politician and is also has more Catholic leanings. He married a he married a Catholic princess, and that causes. And then he appoints church leaders who are very, um, you know, basically consciously triggering the Puritans at every turn. Um, so that leads from you know from 1625, the death of King James, till 1640, things go downhill very rapidly, and you have the English Civil War coming out of that. And um, and it's interesting. A lot of what Hooker predicts sort of happens, and that you have kind of the once the floodgates are released, and the the Puritans get control of Parliament, the most radical elements quickly kind of come to the fore, and you get really really weirdo groups um, that emerge quickly in the course of the English Civil War. So anyway, but we I don't want to go through all of English history. But to your question of you know, is modern to what extent are modern Presbyterians? Downstream of that, um, you know, it it really depends. <laughs> it, really, it really depends. Um, the, I think, yeah, I, I think uh, there is kind of that radical streak that you see. That there's there's still a kind of intense biblicism, a strong obsessed regular principle. If it's you know, it's not in the Bible. We don't do it. Um, 
and in and then a, in a sense that Presbyterianism is the only biblical form of church government. But I, you also have a much more moderate strain as well. So I think you know, and you've had that since since the late 16th century. You've had moderate Presbyterians and radical Presbyterians, and they both carry on to today. So, well, what do you think about Hooker as this? In some ways, he seems like the classic Anglican. He's the via media. He's the he's, he's you know the the third way kind of thing, because on the one hand, you could see the you know some Protestants saying he was too wedded to these traditional doctrines and not testing them against the word. And you could see Catholics going, see, this is what happens. You tried to untether for us. Like you mentioned with the adiaphora, who decides? And well, Roman Catholic would be like, well, you know, we have an infallible magisterium, we decide, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but also them retaining certain things, it's like, well, are you being faithful to the word? It, you know, what, what, did Hooker think that there were arguments for monoepiscopacy? in the episcopate in in the new testament um i guess what i'm trying to say is what what do you think of how hooker tried to bridge the gap so to speak perhaps between catholics and protestants do you think it worked do you, you know what were some insights that he had how, how did he how did he work in that space kind of being in this middle position although he would i'm sure self-consciously be like i'm not roman catholic i am protestant right but he he fills a unique space, and I'm I'm curious whether you think he was, you know, what, what, yeah. how how he did that, and and how you think if it, if it was effective, and and what his arguments were, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that could be said there. I mean, the first thing is to say, you know, he makes a pretty sharp distinction between matters of doctrine and discipline, um, matters of faith and polity, and so he's going to say, on matters of doctrine. He's it's there's no he would say there's no real splitting the difference between, you know, the, the idea of a kind of a middle way between Rome and the Reformation is misleading because it's sort of a lot of these things are just are kind of either or. And you can't you can you just sort of fudge and confuse the picture and pretend to be a middle. But ultimately, you got to decide, you know, are you with Rome or with Luther on justification, for instance? So, um, you know, on that, and he does, he he writes a, a a fantastic treatise on justification that we've also modernized and published here at Davenant, um, which is a series of sermons, and it's a great explication of the Protestant doctrine of justification. But it is also wrestling with the question of how do we relate to Rome on this? Does this mean, as and I think as some were saying then, and as there's Protestants who would say this now, if if justification by faith is, you know, the heart of the gospel. And if Catholics get that wrong, then that means Catholics don't have the gospel. And if Catholics don't have the gospel, then that means they can't be saved, right? And Hooker says, yeah, well, not so fast, right? Um, because it would be better to say that justification by faith is an, is the attempt to um, – is sort of the clearest exposition of the logic of the gospel. <laughs> but, I mean, the gospel is simply um, – you know, Jesus is our only King and Savior. You know, like you'd basically say, like that is um, Jesus through His death and resurrection is our only King and Savior. That's a, that is the gospel in its simplest form. <laughs> and he would say, you know, a lot of Roman Catholics believe that. Um, what they he says, I think they have a very confused theology of how that plays out, and such that such that he would say they they're basically they 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 end up in an inconsistency. They say Jesus is our only savior, but then they embrace other doctrines that that end up 
putting us in this position of, of helping to save ourselves, right? But he says, look, just because, so he says they're inconsistent. In a sense, they affirm the gospel. In another sense, they deny the gospel. Um, and so he makes this distinction between denying a doctrine directly and denying it by consequence, right? Denying it by, you know, sort of logical, as a logical conclusion. And he says lots of people deny the gospel by logical consequence. In fact, probably all of us do in some sense. <laughs> it's like, in some sense, any theological error, if you were to sort of trace it back and say, well, you know, if you get that wrong, then logically that would mean that, and logically that would mean that, and logically, you know, ultimately at some level, it overturns the heart of the faith, right? Um, but thankfully, you know, the Lord is merciful to us in our inconsistencies. And so if somebody truly from the heart embraces the gospel, then even if they at the same time embrace other things that are in tension with that, um, the Lord can be merciful to them and save them. And so Hooker says, look, the doctrine of justification is absolutely essential. It's important. I'm totally with Luther on this. But that doesn't mean that every Catholic who doesn't understand it um, is going to hell, right? So that's, you know, on something like that, that's sort of how he bridges the gap, right? He doesn't, he doesn't bridge it by fudging, by trying to compromise, but he does say um, we need to uh, recognize that that people are complicated and God is merciful to us in our in our errors, right? Um, on matters of discipline or church polity, liturgy, Hooker is going to say these are very different from matters of doctrine because they are not they are not the sort of things where there is only one right answer. Um, you know, it's it's it either is or isn't the case that justification is by faith. He's going to say it's not. It but it it may be the case that one church. They should be governed by bishops, and in another church, they shouldn't be governed by bishops, right? Um, I mean, he will even say, as, strong, as much as he favors government by bishops, he'll say, Calvin was right. It, the system that Calvin put in place in Geneva was the best system that Calvin could have put in place in Geneva under the circumstances. So that was good. That was a good church government for Geneva. Um, so in those matters of discipline, we recognize that there are multiple possible ways to go. And then the question becomes all these things that the question comes, you know, all these things the medieval church was doing, should we keep on doing them? Right? Should our worship look a little bit like Roman Catholic worship, even if our theology is different? And and that was of course that was the key issue that started the debate, right? Do we, you know, do we keep wearing white since they were wearing white, right? Do we keep kneeling at communion? Because they were kneeling at communion. Um and Hooker will say, he basically says, you know, a traditional practice, there's a tradition establishes a burden of proof. If the church has been doing things a certain way for a long period of time, then there's a burden of proof. Anybody who wants to get rid of that practice has to meet a higher burden of proof. That doesn't mean you can't meet that burden of proof. And so he will say, like, here's something that was introduced. It became a source of superstition. It became a corrupt practice. The reformers were good to get rid of it, right? Um, but then other things he says, here's the thing that was introduced. It became kind of superstitious and corrupt, but we can correct the superstition and keep doing the same thing for a different reason. And if we can, so kneeling at communion is a good example of that, right? He would say, this is a big debate. Does the practice of kneeling at communion, is that affirming belief in transubstantiation where you're saying I'm kneeling because I'm worshiping Jesus physically present in the elements? 
that's what the Roman Catholic Church was doing. And many of the Puritans said, well, we don't believe in transubstantiation, so we absolutely shouldn't kneel at communion. And Hooker says, well, no, 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 there's a third way. We could say we don't believe in transubstantiation, but we could still kneel at communion because kneeling is just a posture of reverence and gratitude toward God. So we're we are gratefully receiving the gift that Christ is offering to us in the sacrament, even if we're not worshiping his, you know, his body physically present in the thing, right? Um, so that's how Hooker tries to deal with, with those things. What do you think is Hooker's legacy today? What can Protestants, perhaps narrowly Anglicans, but broadly Protestants in general, what can they learn from Hooker? And why is it so important to retrieve what he's been saying for today? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things I could say, but I'll just focus on two, I think. Um, so one is is that issue of how do you sort through doctrinal conflict and figure out, you know, all right, what is it we're arguing about? We have a church that's splitting over this issue. Okay, are we arguing over a matter of doctrine or are we arguing over a matter of discipline? Um, is this something where there is one right answer or is it, is it not? Uh, if And if it is a matter of doctrine, is it something that is directly denying the gospel or is it something that's sort of denying by a sort of train of logical consequence, right? And so I think in terms of how Protestants think about divisions amongst themselves, um, in terms of how Protestants think about the relation to Roman Catholicism, especially as Roman Catholicism has in some ways reformed itself since Vatican II, I think Hooker offers a really helpful sort of toolkit for thinking through um, theological conflicts and how to how and when to be ecumenical and when and when to draw hard lines. I think the other key legacy is on this, this tendency toward biblicism, this tendency to say, well, if we need to know something, the Bible must contain an answer somewhere. And so I'm going to find that biblical answer, and then I'm going to turn around and accuse everybody else of being unbiblical because they don't agree with my answer, right? And so Hooker is just really helpful putting on those brakes and saying, you know, slow down here. Is it really true? Is it really true that just because you want to know the answer to this, that that, that the Bible <laughs> tells you that, right? Um, in fact, the Bible wants us. God wants us to grow in wisdom, and growing in wisdom means learning how to answer hard questions for ourselves when there isn't necessarily one one right answer. And you see this progression from the Old Testament to the New. This is the Old Testament has very detailed laws. Um, New Testament, you know. Uh, says, look, the whole law is summed up in, you know, love, you know, love God and love your neighbor, right? Uh, and and when Paul is talking through issues of of ethics in the new in the new in the New Testament churches, it, it's this. There's a sense of you need to use. You have this Christian freedom. You've been freed from the law. You need to use this freedom well, and reason about what what is best for my neighbor in this in this context so the new testament is the summons to maturity the summons to exercise uh exercise spirit-filled wisdom uh by reflecting on the full range of 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 revelation that god gives us in in the word and in the world and hooker is calling us back to that kind of maturity and i think many very often we're tempted we we we, we shut we sort of um shy away from that that summons to maturity and we want to kind of we want to go back as the Galatians we want to go back into the the comfort of being children who have everything laid out for us in black and white and um i think you know that's 
you know, in our in our current context of intensifying culture wars, we need to say, okay, here are where there are things that are black and white, as where there are there are lines that we have to draw as to uh, our cultures doing many things that are revolting against the basic principles of nature, not even just against scripture, but just against the basic principles of nature. Uh, but that doesn't tell us, you know, how we should vote uh, or, or how, you know, we, it tells us that abortion is wrong. It doesn't tell us what the best way is to go about uh, outlawing or, or limiting abortions, right? So we got to be able to say, yeah, we, we, we need to know which things are wisdom issues. And I think Hooker is really valuable for that. So Hooker is helpful with sort of this, you know, the Reformation's happening. People are sort of, you know, it's just like this powder keg of just people kind of rediscovering things and, and, and all that stuff. And it's almost like Hooker can be a good moderating factor for people trying to become the worst character of Protestantism, you know? Um, but how can Hooker help somebody? You know, it's almost like Hooker's like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's not stray so far, you know, become Anabaptist. But what are ways that he goes to somebody who's thinking about becoming Roman Catholic? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You don't also want to go back there. Yeah, so I think a couple of things we could say. One would be by showing Protestants that they don't need to become Roman Catholic to get a lot of the things that they are attracted, you know, attracted to Roman Catholicism before, right? So he says, look, if it's if it's the rich liturgy you want, we can do rich liturgy too. Um, there's nothing there's nothing unProtestant about uh, about you know a, a lot of, a, a much more elaborate liturgy. <laughs> um, if it's if it's respect for tradition that you want. We can do respect for tradition too, right? Um, you know that we need to define that correctly. But again, if, if if something is a well, like we need to see ourselves as part of a community of faith, see ourselves as um, sort of sitting at the feet of wise teachers in the church who've gone before us. And so, tradition does have a, a certain established burden of proof, as I said, at least. Um. So a lot of the things that people react against low church evangelicalism to say, well, this is obviously, you know, we don't have any sacraments, we don't have any structure, we don't have any any sense of history, we don't have any beauty in our worship, you know, but I guess I guess I better become Roman Catholic. Hooker says, Well, hold hold on here. That like you can have you can do all those things and be Protestant, right? Um, so that's part of it. Um, I think there's also um so as it were, sort of maybe on the playing defense side, that's how he would help. Um, on playing offense, he has a very, I think, clear doctrine of the church, clearly expounded doctrine of the church, book three especially, where he really emphasized the importance, the distinction between the visible and the invisible church. Um, and, and says that the, you know, the, we need to not confuse the external structure of the church with the essence of the church. And that's, that's the fundamental error of Roman Catholicism, right? Is by saying this governmental structure under the Pope just is the church is the body of Christ such that if you're not under that authority structure, you're not part of the body of Christ. And Hooker's going to say, no, um, the body of Christ is a, a communion of believers in union with Christ 
which is uh, it, it's made up of visible people, but as an as an entity, it's it's invisible in the sense that we can't we can't to to know what any entity is is to see the to see the boundaries, right? You see where the rock begins and where the rock ends, right? That's that's what the rock is. Uh, the church, we can't see where it begins and ends. Um, its identity is hidden in 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 Christ, and so the external structure, the authority structure, is there to serve to serve the 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 being of the church, which is which is invisible, right? So I think Hooker gives a very clear statement of Reformation ecclesiology that um, needs to be wrestled with by anybody tempted by the claims of Rome. Yeah, someone I think Joe Joe Minnick over you know your your buddy and the teacher at Davenant was talking about how uh, Hooker is considered uh, like one of one of the great Thomists, or the great you know <laughs> he's a big natural law Aquinas all that stuff. Right. And that was fascinating, too, because I think in many ways people are drawn to Roman Catholicism because they start reading Aquinas. And then I think Hooker is a great resource to be like, well, no, you can appreciate Aquinas to a great deal and uh, yeah. and still not become Roman Catholic. Um, maybe, maybe just to, to wrap up our time, what? how about you personally? On a personal level, how has reading Richard Hooker impacted you? shaped the way that you think, shaped the way that you think about uh, the church and really even Davenant Institute itself. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of things I could say here again, but um, I mean, for me, it was formative in that I grew up in a Reformed Presbyterian church. I kind of reacted against that in a lot of, the, you know, a lot of the ways that people become Catholic. I didn't go that far, but I, you know, I became Anglican in a very, you know, I don't know, kind of sophomoric way of, you know, I'm I'm rejecting my childhood and and converting to this new thing called Anglicanism, which seems a little silly now. But um, you know, I kind of went through that and had us and and the the kind of Anglican that I was becoming at that time was the kind that sort of says, Oh, well, Anglicanism isn't really Protestant. We're this third thing. You know, the Reformation was a real shame. It's a shame that the church was broken up at the Reformation. And but we Anglicans are kind of standing in the gap. Anyway, I I, I kind of was going that direction, but I still had and I and I was so frustrated with so many of the things in my Presbyterian background. Um but I still had this reformed theology very deep in my bones. And I realized like I was I still was I still was reformed. And so reading Hooker just kind of personally helped me put all those pieces back together. And like, oh, um, yeah, like <laughs> I'm not wrong to be frustrated about those the, those kind of Puritan aspects of my of my church background. You know, these were issues 400 years ago. Like, why did <laughs> Hooker answer these things? Why are we still you know Why are we still making these same mistakes? Uh, so he helped me make sense of the things I've been frustrated with in my reform background, but also still be, I think, robustly doctrinally reformed on the key points. So that was important, and and I think really kind of settled a lot of my my own theological wrestlings in a way that I basically, you know, kind of haven't really budged probably in the last twelve years. Um, but I, another thing, though, that he's very helpful with is um, so one of the things that he says to the Puritans is, okay, 
you're getting very worked up about the problems that you see in the church. And, and the conclusion that they reach is that like all these problems in the church, it must be because of the bishops. The bishops are screwing everything up. We need to get rid of the bishops. And he's like, this is such a human nature thing to do, right? We look at any institution, we see problems, we figure the problems are just the fault of the people in authority. If we just get rid of the people in authority, the problems go away, right? And that's what every that's what every election cycle is in the U.S., right? It's like, uh, the, you know, the economy is stagnating. All right, it's because of these people in Congress, throw them all out, put new people in, they'll fix it, right? And of course, it doesn't work that way. Um, in part because you're replacing one set of fallen people with another set of fallen people, but also he would say, because you're just you're dealing with a complicated institution, and you could have the best possible people there, very well intentioned, and there's still going to be a lot of problems. Um, and and so what he says is you need like be slow to rush to judgment of the of authorities just in general, whether that's your parents, whether that's leaders of a school, leaders of your church, whether that's your your civic leaders, your president, right? It's 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 so human nature, and particularly in America, we have this anti-authoritarian st streak, and we just love to rail against you know the big bad government, and and it's just like you know there are all these stupid things wrong. You know if I were in charge, right? And Hooker, I think, just offers a sweeping rebuke to all of that, and he just says, if you were in charge, you'd find it's a heck of a lot more complicated, <laughs> um, and you'd probably be wish that you weren't in charge. And so just that humility, that 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 kind of taking us sort of ch checking that impulse to rush to judgment and to say, maybe it may be that the people in charge really are screwing it up, but it may be that they're doing their best in a really difficult situation. Um, and I should have a judgment of charity toward that. That's just been a very helpful habit of mind, I think, for me to cultivate um, as you know, I interact with all with all kinds of authorities and institutions. So those are some great thoughts. I appreciate the time, Brad. I appreciate your scholarship on this. I think it's a really helpful thing. And I've certainly learned a lot from reading Davidant's work on Hooker and, and your modern translation is really helpful, especially as I learn more about how dense some of Hooker's writings can be for modern for modern eyes. And, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thanks for being on the show with us, Brad. Thanks, Brian. My pleasure. If you guys appreciated this episode, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Please leave a review. That really helps us out a lot. And uh, share with your friends. If you want a place to find all of these podcasts archived, you can go to that'llpreach.io. You can also follow us on Instagram at that'llpreachpodcast. We'd love to hear from you, but we'll see you guys next week. 